Welcome to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast featuring alumni from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and today I'll be interviewing an alum with a long history working in unscripted television. She was Senior Vice President of Development at both Warner Brothers and Disney, where she developed shows like The Bachelor, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and Ellen. I was always one of the few women on the studio side when I got to Los Angeles. I was one of the few who had children. And um, there was definitely a culture of, oh, you don't leave before your boss does. But we didn't use work-life balance because we were still trying to have both. (laughs) I think that's why. It wasn't until we got both that we were like, oh yeah, this should be balanced. That was Stephanie Noonan-Droshkovich, a 1979 journalism grad. She and her husband are co-founders of 44 Blue Productions and have produced many extremely popular shows, including Jailbirds, which was the number two most watched unscripted show on Netflix in the U.S. last year. By the way, it was number one in Australia and the U.K., Today, she's here to talk to us about what the entertainment industry looks like for women, both past and present, how the reality TV genre has evolved over time, and last but not least, she'll tell us the secret to a successful pitch. So let's get started. Stephanie, it is so good to see you, even if it's only over Zoom. Oh, Michelle, it's great to see you too. I hope everything is going well there. Thank you. Yeah, things are good. You've been involved in the unscripted TV space really since the beginning of this era of reality television that I think of as beginning with Survivor, which I think was actually originally pitched to you. Yes, it was. What happened with that? Well, I mean, I just happened to be at Disney when that was that was a project that was part of our um, slate because we had an overall deal with the original creator of it. It was just a paper format, and this would have been in the late 90s. And um, it was such a big, outrageous, amazing idea. And um, it had nothing like this had ever been done before. We were a little, you know, I mean, we were a little concerned about like, how do you produce it? And what if somebody gets hurt? You know, what if somebody gets sick or, we were part of a big studio and you have to do all the risk analysis and mitigation. And since nothing like that had ever been produced before, we had to you know, be thinking of how would we handle all the worst case scenarios of a show like that. So as a result, excuse me, it never went forward um, under Buena Vista Television. And instead, and I don't have all the details anymore of how it happened, but I believe Mark Burnett was producing his Eco Challenge overseas. I think he auctioned it over there and got it going in Europe and then brought it back to the U.S. And Mark, you know, I mean, he's a legend and he was the right person to make that show. Whereas, you know, with us at the time, we didn't have that, you know, we were missing that component probably. We didn't have that person. And so you would have been at Disney, uh, The Bachelor is ABC, isn't it? Yes, Bachelor is ABC, but I was at Warner Brothers when we did The Bachelor. Um, so I had left Disney ABC at that point and I was at Warner Brothers and um, I cannot take credit for, for producing it or you know living through the long, long hours and long nights and figuring out how to make it since I was on the development side. 
that was just part of selling it. <laughs> so like I had to figure out the selling paper part. And then once it was done, I was like, those guys had to figure out how to make it. And boy, did they figure it out. And I mean, look at it now. I mean, there's, there's basically an entire generation that does not know a world without The Bachelor. But yeah, that was really remarkable. I still remember being at the first rose ceremony, um, you know, and, and also what people were writing about it at the time. You know, the op-ed columnists saying like, this is the end of civilization as we know it. And, you know, I don't know. I just, it just, people were just kind of outraged by it, you know, on the academic side that we would do something mm-hmm. like this. Back in the day, I, I mean, I can understand why people might want to be on some of those more popular shows now. They're catapulted into celebrity and they understand what they're kind of getting. And But how I, I don't understand why people would have done it the first season or how yeah. you even recruit. How you got people to do things the first season of any show, by the way. Um, no, you're right. I mean, I, I, I wish I had some specific anecdotes or memories of what that was like, but I do remember it was challenging because you were asking people to come on an unknown show and to find love, you know, and um, I don't, as I recall, we couldn't tell them who The Bachelor was. I don't think we, I don't think they ever do. And certainly back then we didn't. Um, and so, yeah, you take a look at those like early pioneers, you know, who are like, yeah, I'll put myself out there and do this, right? And I have to give them so much credit. And Trista, um, who ended up being the first bachelorette, you know, same with her. It's like, she was like, yeah, okay, I'll do this. And um, now it's different, I think, is what you were alluding to. Back then, there wasn't a culture of, quote, reality television and going on a show and then, gee, that could actually turn into a career and it could like bring me opportunity or... By the way, the word brand barely existed back then, like I'm going to build a brand. Fast forward to today, I think, yeah, again, there's a whole generation of people who are like, oh, yeah, that's just something you do. You go on television and you can build a brand and launch a career. And so I think people are more willing to do it now. But also I think a big part of it back then and even now is the trust factor with the production company and who's producing. And, and you know, Warner Brothers and Telepictures had an amazing reputation at the time. They still do. Um so, you know, we were able to call people and say, we're this studio, you know, we're a studio, like this is what we produce. And, you know, we do Rosie O'Donnell, and we do, you know, all the other shows that we do, you know, Ellen, um, you know, all the all those types of shows. So we were able to bring that um, weight and that trust factor to it. And then to fast forward today, I think that still plays a role. Um, you know, when we ca- are, are casting or looking for participants in shows, we always think like we want them when they go on our website to look us up, we want to make sure there's nothing there that we'd be embarrassed about, which is a big filter of how we choose the shows that we create as a company. You are a bigwig in the industry now. You've had quite a journey. And I have to say, when you and Sven Nelson hosted that event down in Los Angeles before COVID for UO alumni, people were so excited to meet you. That was a great lunch. Yeah. And I'm just curious, after graduating from the University of Oregon with a degree in journalism, how how did you then get to where you're at? Um, oh, wow. Okay. Well, Michelle, <laughs> I was at U of O. I was a magazine journalism major, Ken Metzler's magazine sequence. He's amazing. He was an amazing professor. And so I just became obsessed with magazines and not just the writing of them, but like the typography and the design and the layout. But I was also kind of curious about television. Um, Ann Curry, who had been president of Women in Communications, she graduated 
Um, I became president after her. And so part of being president of Women in Communications was setting up these panel discussions. And there was a panel that we did at the EMU um, that had, as I recall, the editor of Willamette Weekly, the editor of then, I think it was called Oregon Magazine, and then um, a woman named Margie Belay, who's the host of AM Northwest on Channel 2 in Portland. And after the panel, I went up to her and I remember thinking like, okay, it sounded like what you know, doing a morning talk show, a lot of the same research and story generation and idea generation that went into a magazine story and pitching a magazine editor is very similar. Only instead of then going off and writing, you know, 2,500 words or 5,000 words, you put together research and you handed it to the host and then they brought it to life, you know, in a talk show setting. So I thought that sounded really interesting and that my skill set would transfer. So I asked her if they had any interns and if I could apply to be an intern, they'd never had an intern. And so she said, but you know what, that shouldn't stop you. Why don't you apply anyway? Maybe you'll be our first. And so that's what I did. I became an intern for, uh, for AM Northwest. And so from there, um, I still kind of thought that I wanted to be in magazines and um, they had an opening for production assistant. And at first I, I turned it down because I was like, no, 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 you know, I want to be in magazines. And I had some friends and colleagues who were broadcast majors. And I just remember them going like, wow, you're turning down like a job in television, like in Portland, like really? And I kind of made myself think of it differently and decided to accept it. And then that launched me really into television Wait, actually, if I could just pause for a second, sure. I wanted to go back to the Women in Communications yes. event. That would have been in the 70s, and the professional landscape probably would have looked a lot different back then. What kinds of things were discussed? Oh, what a great question. You know, it was about promoting women in communications. I think it must have been at the time we were looking for role models, networking, um, career advice. Um, you know, the whole, like, if you can't, you can't dream it, if you don't know it exists, I think that was part of it is looking for women who are in those roles to inspire us because we were that sort of next generation of career, uh, you know, women who were like, yeah, we can do this. Like we can have it all. Like, don't tell us we can't, you know. And work-life balance would have been a term that wasn't even invented. I don't think it was invented. No, that was more about, can you have it all? That was more like, can you have career and family? But we didn't use work-life balance because we were still trying to have both. <laughs> I think that's why. It wasn't until we got both that we were like, oh yeah, this should be balanced. Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of came up in the era where most of our moms you know, and, and not to generalize, but probably most of our moms were not working mothers. We're not quote career moms. Um, my mom had been a journalism major at Medill at Northwestern. She was in the advertising sequence and she had worked in advertising, but then she, you know, married a man in the military, had three kids, moved around the world, um, couldn't really have a career moving around. And it wasn't until we settled in the Portland area, my dad had retired from the military and was in the private sector, that she then kind of jumped back in, did a lot of volunteer work and started to find sort of a new career path. But that was in her 40s, probably. Okay, that would have been the late 50s, the Mad Men era in advertising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was part of that era. And she was a copywriter. And, um, you know, so I always think of, uh, I think it's Peggy, right? Is it Peggy as a copywriter? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's just interesting. You're right. It's like work-life balance didn't really exist. It was more like, no, 
I can have a career and I can also have kids. And I do remember in later years, I was always one of the few women on the studio side when I got to Los Angeles, I was one of the few who had children. And um, there was definitely a culture of, oh, you don't leave before your boss does at the end of the day. You, you, you can never leave before he did. And you can never say that you're leaving for something with your kids. And so I did grow up with a bit of that, that you like never use your children or your family as an excuse for not doing the work because you never ever wanted someone to not promote you because of your kids and your family. So I think as a result, probably women who are more my era, we probably double, triple, you know, like you worked harder in a sense. I was also very blessed to have amazing childcare and a husband who was really supportive. And so I was very lucky in that I had a lot of support on the home front. But still, you had to be really careful. And whenever I would get a job offer, I would always say, okay, well, here's what you have to know about me. I'm a mom. I have three kids. I have pediatrician's appointments and games to go to and school conferences and whatever. But, um, you know, I may have to leave at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to go do that. But I'm going to come back. I'm going to work as long as it takes into the evening to get my work done. You'll never know the difference. That was right at the beginning of email. And again, right at the beginning of us all learning that you have to set boundaries. But at the time, what it did is it allowed us to be parents and keep our job done because we came back, did dinner, got the kids homework, did whatever. And then at eight o'clock, went back to email or whatever to do what we needed to do. So after working at AM Northwest in Portland, you accepted jobs at several different local TV stations, worked in Philadelphia for a while moved to the Bay Area, got some executive producer experience under your belt, and then you had a bit of a pivot. What happened? At that point, I left the station world because everybody was getting out of local programming and buying syndicated programming. And we started the company and our spare bedroom. (laughs) I got offered a a director of development job at Disney uh, here in, in Los Angeles. And so that brought us back to LA. And I took that as sort of a way to bring our company back to LA too, where we could really have more opportunity there in the Bay Area. So I went and did that when my husband really grew the company and then did, you know, Disney uh, director level, went to BW as a vice president, then went to Pearson, which is now Fremantle, to Disney again, a second time as senior vice president of programming, then Warner Brothers senior vice president of programming. And then in 2003, I left that studio world came back to 44 Blue, and I've been at 44 Blue since. Where's been your favorite place to work? Oh, definitely our own company has been my favorite because you're doing it, you're doing it for yourself and you're doing what you're, what you're passionate about. Rasha had really grown the company to an amazing point. And, um, you know, I was, he's the one who convinced me to come back and, he was like, instead of going back to another studio job or network job, why don't you come back and kind of see what we've done with the place and um, return to your producing roots. And so I came back that summer thinking, oh, it might be temporary. And it was just really fun to roll up my sleeves and jump into um, ideas and shows and projects that like, I personally and we as a company were passionate about. Mm-hmm. I imagine the life as a studio exec as being someone who... Um, almost gets no peace, like someone's always maybe hitting you up for a job in some way. Is that right? That's funny. Yeah, when you're a studio exec, it's interesting. You are both a buyer and a seller because you are, you're developing content typically 
and on the television side, then you're pitching that content to the networks and the platforms, right? As a, as a studio on a seller. So you, so you take pitches, people pitch you, absolutely. You hire and so there's jobs, you know, for the shows that you're producing. Um, and then you're also selling. So yeah, studio exec is an interesting world because um, there's a lot of opportunity and you typically have access to talent at a really high level. Um, you know, in the, in the era when I was a studio exec, you had access to budgets that were really remarkable, which don't necessarily exist anymore, but, um, you were really kind of playing the game at a really high level. You know, I always likened it to like being on the court, like at the time, like with the Lakers, you know, like, you know, you had the ball passed you all the time. You're like, Whoa, I'm out here with like the best players in the world. You know, I got to like make decisions and, you know, you know, pass the ball. Um, and, um, that's kind of what it's like. Um, but you're still part of a big, you know, multinational global media company with lots of layers. And, you know, so you're still part of a big organization, corporate organization. Like how many women are studio execs or were at the time when you were? Well, when I was, okay. And again, I, I was a studio exec through 2003. Um, and I was in the um, kind of unscripted world. So a very specific lane. In unscripted across the different studios. Women, I would say, actually had a pretty strong representation. But so our, I would say, unscripted as a genre, I think has traditionally had more opportunity for women than maybe some of the other genres that we typically read about when you read about Hollywood, film and scripted television. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of Me Too and all yeah, that. Yeah, I think, and, and it's interesting, we did a video actually last year called Produced By because in all the articles about Time's Up and Me Too, um, our genre typically was never referenced in any of those articles. And I'm not saying our genre is perfect by any means, by the way, it's still mainly male, our genre. Most of the production, most of the production companies are owned by men. I mean, probably 90%. Um, you could probably count, I bet there's under 20 that have a female partner or are owned by women on the production company side. But that said, as a genre, we weren't really part of that conversation. And we, at the time I looked around our company and we had like five female vice presidents or SVPs, EVPs. Um, we had like five female showrunners, eight shows on the air, seven of them were run by women or co-run by women. I think five female online producers. So as a company, we've always been very female forward and I wanted to be able to share that story. So we did a video and put it out there called Produced By. In the scripted area, in the film area, it has been traditionally more male um, and there haven't been a lot of women in those rooms around the table. Our genres, I think we're always, for whatever reason, maybe because we weren't as glamorous a genre, you know, maybe there were more opportunities because we weren't, you know, kind of the fancy film and scripted television people. Well, it's interesting that you should say that about the sort of overlooked um, genre of unscripted television. It's a huge space oh, and yeah. um, it doesn't really get talked about. Do you, do you have feelings about that? Well, I mean, you know, we are, we're kind of like the, like one of the workhorses of the industry because in, for instance, with COVID right now and so many scripted, scripted series that weren't able to go back into production or maybe still haven't been able to go back into production, into production because of the protocols required in that genre. Um, unscripted has been able to be a bit more nimble. Um, we have smaller crews. Um, we don't shoot in, a, in a, indoors as much. We do a lot of outdoor shooting. And so unscripted, um, from what I understand and talking to my industry colleagues, 
we maybe have gotten back into production a smidge more quickly than large-scale scripted um, production. And so when the networks now fast forward to next year, if, if their top dramas, let's say, aren't able to come back with original episodes and they have holes to fill on their schedule, unscripted is a genre that can be um, produced and get on the air very, you know, much more quickly than, un than scripted typically. So our, I think our genre definitely has gained um, respect over the years. You know, we're kind of our own worst enemy sometimes because of some of the things that the genre has put out. That said, people watch it, you know, so there's a sort of like if people don't like it, then don't watch it. Mm -hmm. The great thing about Unscripted is it's about real people. So therefore, you have the whole rainbow and uh, landscape of people. So you, you know, you're going to have like, you know, a highbrow nature documentary you know, let's say, you know, BBC documentary, and then you're going to have, you know, some of the stuff that's kind of what the, the Brits call cheap and cheerful. Mm -hmm. You've done a couple shows that have really talked about having a deeper understanding of humanity. And um, so Pitbulls and Parolees mm -hmm. is a very touching show about redemption and um, starting mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Second chances. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting. Yeah, Pitbulls is one of our is our longest running show now. Um, it's going into season 16 for viewers. My husband oversees that and executive produces it and has been with it from the beginning when it started in Agua Dulce, right up the 14 here in LA. And then, you know, Tia lost her property and then moved to um, somewhere else and then couldn't stay there because the neighbors didn't want, you know, a rescue in their quote backyard. She, um, had an opportunity to move to New Orleans and move the dogs to New Orleans. And that show has followed her every step of the way as she moved 400 dogs from Southern California to New Orleans. Um, so Rasha oversees that one. And, and that one is truly, it's about second chances and redemption. And what we realize is pretty for blue is a lot of our shows are about that. And so as a company, we try to be about that as well. And Rasha also oversees a show called Jailbirds on Netflix which is a um, ensemble documentary series set in a women's correctional facility in Sacramento. And we embedded with them for almost a year and told the stories of those women and what they were up against and how they survived and how they made it through and relationships. And um, so he's overseen that one. That one's been very rewarding. And that was the most watched series on, on Netflix last year in the UK and Australia. And the second most watched in the US, the only thing that beat us was Marie Kondo. Ah. So that's how I watched that series was on Netflix. Yeah. Congratulations. So that one's been incredibly rewarding. Um, we're doing a new series right now that has not been announced um, uh, that's set in a transplant unit of a very prominent hospital. Um, it's gonna, hmm. It'll be the first time that um, American television has ever been able to embed um, for many months to tell the story of transplant recipients and doctors and first responders and nurses who um, help save their lives and truly give them a second life, a second chance at life. So um, I get to executive produce that one and it's been incredibly rewarding so far. Um, Married to the Army that we did for OWN was an amazing experience because as an Army brat, I always wanted to tell that story about what it's like to be a real life Army wife. And um, we embedded with you know, seven military spouses at Fort Richardson, Alaska, and we're with them for about a year as their husbands came home for R&R &R and the forward operating base was attacked and, you know, babies were born. And I mean, it was just amazing. So I always feel like it's such an honor to be invited into someone else's life and to be able to be there with them. That's anything like that. I just love. So 
yeah, it, you would probably really get to know people. I mean, we look at these unscripted shows and the plots are kind of constructed for us and edited into perfection, but there are just probably thousands of hours that you guys are going through and trying to decide what to put in and um, I can't imagine putting that together. Yeah, it's it's hard. And as as my husband Rosh always says, like shows like Lock Up that we did for have done for twenty years, three hundred some episodes, um, Jailbirds, Pitbulls, they there's no second takes in those shows really. Those are the types of shows where yeah, you're a uh, you are just just following the action and 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 again being invited in. So um, it is hard because you have to figure out how to you know what's you may get all this other extra stuff, but if it doesn't move the story forward or there's just not room in it, sometimes it results in extra episodes actually, because you find a whole new storyline and the network's like, oh my God, we want to see that. So you get another episode. So do you come up with the ideas for the shows? Are people pitching you? Both. Um, about a third of our slate is what we call internally generated, um, internal ideas where our team, you know, we sit around brainstorming, coming up with ideas. A third of it is people pitching us from the outside who maybe they have access to something or they have a deal with the talent or they have a book or whatever, and they'll pitch us. Um, and then about a third are networks coming to us and asking us to um, jump into a project, take it over, develop it, shape it, and produce it. So, yeah. And what's the secret to a successful pitch? Oh, wow. <laughs> If it was that easy, there would be more of them, I By suppose. By the way, exactly. I would say clarity of idea, enthusiasm. If you're not excited about it, how am I going to get excited about it? Surprise. Show me something. Introduce me to someone I've never met or show me a place I've never been. Surprise me. Like, you may think this about that world, but guess what? You know? Um, I love social experiments. Like what would happen if, you know, mm. what would happen if you did this? Oh, now you got me thinking. So the secret to a successful pitch in zoom land in COVID land. Now you really have to be buttoned up because pitches, you know, an LA pitch used to be like you book an hour, you get there, you sit out in the lobby, right? You go in, everybody's talks about how, how'd you get here? Uh, what, uh, you know, which road did you take, et cetera. You start the pitch and you're pretty much for an hour with quarantine now it's like they are half hour and you have your materials and you screen share and you walk them through it sometimes you send in advance um so they get to see it in advance um which i love because then you kind of get to start with great they already saw something and now they have their questions but yeah you know surprising and um entertain me you know it's all entertainment and you've remained very involved with the university. You have a son who is a UO grad, and you were on the board of the School of Ge Journalism and Communications. Um, what was that like? Uh, having a son go there was pretty was pretty wild. Um, uh, was, we have three boys. One went to USC undergrad, one went to University of Colorado, and the youngest went to University of Oregon. And so I was like really stoked when he decided he wanted to go there. And um, it was just really kind of, it was neat to be back on campus and, you know, to relive some of the memories from when I was there, but also to see, you know, the advancements and see like the new buildings and the, and the you know, Allen Hall, which I just was like, oh my God, I would have given anything to be in that hall back in the day. <laughs> and the new Allen Hall, not the old one, because mm -hmm. I was in the old one, right? 
Um, I think Oregon's really good at creating a well-rounded curriculum for those who are in the SOJC. I remember at the time being kind of resistant to it as a student, like, why do I have to take econ? Why do I have to take science classes? And I still remember them saying, because if you're going to be a journalist, if you're going to be a creator, you have to have something to write about. You have to have a worldview. You have to have been exposed to things. Can I tell you how many times I think of two classes, which by the way, I did not do well in. I think of my, I think of my environmental economics class. And I remember someone at the J school saying, trust me, business reporting in the future is going to be a big thing. And at the time I'm like, I don't know. I don't get this. Business reporting is going to be that big of a deal. And look where we are now. How important is that, right? And environmental journalism, oh my gosh, I wish I'd paid more attention. But I think Oregon's been very ahead of the the curve at that in terms of creating that well-rounded person. I remember you saying that your son had a great experience in the advertising program at UO. You specifically mentioned Deb Morrison. My son took her class. He went to New York twice. She is just like my hero. I, I, I loved following her when he was there because I just loved the um, inspiration and the curiosity she inspired in her in her student. Um, I'd still like to see a version of Deb's New York class in LA. You've mentioned that before about creating more opportunities between the University of Oregon and Los Angeles for people who want to work in entertainment, but um, who are studying any major. It's like, has anybody ever had an Imagineer come to U of I? Imagineering is a thing. Like you can be an Imagineer. Imagineers come from engineering, graphics, storytelling. I could go help create rides for Disneyland. Wow. You know? So anyway, all those things. I mean, like we say, like you're an accountant. By the way, there's production accounting. You want to be an accountant, but be an accountant on Grimm in Portland or, you know, Stranger Things or, you know, um, The Bachelor. Those shows need accountants. So, oh, okay, that's a career opportunity. So there's more than just the writing and the editing and the shooting and the straight creative jobs that are available. There's all of the support for all of the studios and productions that basically mirror any industry. Well, you know, I'm a huge advocate for Los Angeles and part of my position working with alumni in LA is part of the university's priority to build those bridges. Back in the 70s, when you graduated, the university was still trying to build ties with the entertainment industry in Portland. Opening up the Portland um, uh, campus, I think that was brilliant. Eugene was not a big media market. So your experiences, your opportunities were limited to the smaller market. Then there was Portland. I had to go get my own internship. There was no pipeline at the time. Um, and so it was like, okay, if we could at least get a, some sort of, you know, plant our flag in Portland, it was at the time the 25th largest markets, you know, totally significant, great television stations, newspapers, great journalism. So I think that is a huge thing that um, U of O has done. It's really great to see. Well, thank you, Stephanie, so much for your time. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. You're one of the tried and true, dependable alumni, and you always say yes to whatever crazy shenanigan I uh, approach (laughs) you with, and I appreciate it so very much. I love your shenanigans, Michelle. You're great. They're lucky to have you. Thank you again. Thanks, everybody, and be sure to subscribe. Would you like to get a message to today's guest? Want to give a shout out to your fellow docs? Check out the show notes to see how you can leave us a voicemail that we can play on the air. And 
Don't forget to follow The Duck Stops here on Instagram. That's where you'll find out about all the ways you can connect with your fellow ducks. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Duck Stops Here.